ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, happy Friday. Selena Green bringing you the last country hour of this working week. I'll bring you an update on harvest here in South Australia, just how much continues to roll into one of the state's largest receivable sites. And right around the world, farmers face growing public and political pressure to reduce nitrogen use. You're going to hear from a Canadian farmer who's visiting our state at the moment about what's happening back in her country in this space and some of the similarities and differences to what Australian farmers are doing. One of the things that's maybe a little higher on the Canadian panic list is policy being proposed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions due to fertilizers that's been proposed uh, to reduce those greenhouse gas emissions associated with fertilizer use by 30%. That's coming up in this next half an hour. If you'd like to get in touch with me today, my talkback number is 1300 222 or text me 0467 921. Well, first up, global conflicts, an upcoming US election, currency volati- volatility. These are potentially all going to be big influences on international grain markets as we go through 2024. Nick Carraher is the CEO and Commodity Advisor for Lockstock Consulting, and he's been in Adelaide this week as one of the key presenters at the Grains Research and Development Corporation's Research Update. Um, there he gave a big picture update on grain markets as they stand and what could be to come. I caught up with Nick earlier and asked him to outline firstly the picture as it stands. We're at the stage of the calendar where we've got northern hemisphere crops that are largely dormant um, while we've pretty much finished the southern hemisphere crops. So we go through this period now where, from a volatility perspective at least, we're waiting for that northern hemisphere crop to come out of dormancy and get an indication of what that production looks like. Um, Early indications still are relatively um, supportive particularly in the Black Sea. So from a stocks profile perspective, um, the haves are certainly Europe and the Black Sea and the have-nots tend to be um, the US and and to some extent the Southern uh, Hemisphere. So we are once again, you know, one of the main suppliers to that Southeast Asian market for wheat. But uh, as we know, um, our production has, uh, has dropped significantly from the last few years of, of amazing production. And with that drop, how has that all factored into the prices that are being paid at the moment? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I think certainly from a um, market access perspective, Russia has, has been a, a bit of a wet blanket, if you like, on global values just because they've had such a big supply and they have um, been willing sellers. Their uh, supply chain has performed exceptionally well. Um, probably a lot better than people anticipated when we led, you know, when we first uh, led into the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So, I think that's been an input that's, you know, maybe caught the market a little off guard. Um, they've uh, set records in terms of their monthly exports on wheat, and that has been um, a bit of the, the price setter of global values. But at the same time, you know, we've got uh, a lower Aussie dollar, which is certainly helping our domestic values. And we still have a freight advantage and the need to fill these Southeast Asian um, homes. So 
it, it has been a bit of a mixed bag, but I think you know, um, from a, a longer-term perspective, values are still relatively good considering um, just those Russian offers. I guess drilling further down into that Asian market, where specifically is is taking a lot and, and is continuing to, to have high demand for Australian grain? Well, yes, certainly we've, we've flipped right back into... Uh, being um, the main supplier to China, I think for both wheat and barley, they, China will be our biggest off-taker. Um, and certainly from a, a supply chain perspective, we went very hard very early on barley. Um, that supply chain now is switching across to wheat um, a little more, so we expect to see a, a big jump in wheat shipments over the next few months. Um, traditional off-takers like uh, Indonesia, for example, still will require our wheat. So it is a bit of a, uh, a timing um, issue, but uh, we are still uh, a supplier to those usual suspects. But um, just given the size of our crop, we've got less to give. And, and remember, you know, if you roll back a few years ago, we certainly weren't doing this sort of tonnage into China. So they dominate our export program. Looking ahead to the rest of 2024, what do you sort of crystal ball will, will be the main things impacting the market? Yeah, look, it's, I mean, I, I think in terms of volatility, I can't remember a time where we've had this much noise thrown at the market, um, you know, from global conflicts to a, a US presidential election to plenty of noise around currencies. I think if you took any one of these things historically uh, and threw it at the market, then um, we'd see a, a pretty significant reaction. But at the moment, markets seem pretty agnostic to all the noise, really. Um, so we go back to fundamentals. I think from a, a major exporter's balance sheet perspective, um, stocks are, are generally pretty tight. So, you know, I think from a, a longer term projection, we, we are still relatively supportive values leading into 24-25 harvest. Obviously, a lot of time to go between now and then. And the best period to, to get, I guess, some more certainty around that is once this crop gets out of dormancy in that northern hemisphere. So we've got another few months before we really have that clarity but, yeah, I mean, I think from a historical valuation perspective, things look relatively well supported. But as you say, it is an interesting year. And um, any of those factors you mentioned earlier, I mean, they individually have uh, quite the potential to, to have a big impact. Yeah, look, the uncertainty at the moment is just unbelievable. Um, I think from a, you know, just Red Sea conflict, uh, Russia-Ukraine, and then just that, that subsequent impact that it has purely on, on currency just alone can move the Aussie dollar domestic values, you know, tens of dollars a tonne. So, you know, the, the fact that, you know, we're, we're trying to predict um, value at the moment with all these variables is, is somewhat difficult. But I think, you know, we, we, we do rely very heavily on those fundamental balance sheets, giving us that indication of, of where fair value should sit. Nick Carraher there from Lockstock Consulting. It's just going on 12 minutes past 12. Well, while harvest tonnages were down in many areas across our state, quality was still pretty good. From Teaports at Wallaroo, there is still a steady stream of trucks rolling through. But Tim Gurney from Teaport says it's now slowed down with drop-offs and shipping has ramped up. Certainly wrapped up on the Air Peninsula. Still a few loads coming into Wallaroo from the bottom end of the York Peninsula, but certainly wrapped up in the last couple of weeks, yeah. They had a harvest go for uh, 23, 24? Pretty good on the YP in the mid-north for Wallaroo. You know, we, we doubled, well over doubled our tonnes from the previous year into Wallaroo, which was just fantastic. The, the support we got from the growers and carriers was unreal. Um, the Air Peninsula, um, you know, below average year. We thought it might have been average, but 
probably turned out to be that 15, 20% below average um, due to the, you know, the frost impact and running out of legs with moisture. So, you know, that's the seasonal nature of the business. It'd be good to all have uh, seasons and harvests like the, the year prior, um, but it wasn't to be. So, you know, Air Peninsula produced about 2.3 million tonnes this growing season. And, uh, you know, the year prior was 4.3 million tonnes, so 2 million tonnes down pretty much. It's a, a massive um, difference. Um, but yeah, with some good uh, summer rains this year already and subsoil moisture down, um, fingers crossed for a good season coming up. What about here uh, around the York Peninsula? Uh, YP was probably average and some results were a little bit better. But certainly to, you know, to have over 230 growers um, deliver into Wallaroo Teaports was you know, fantastic. And bringing in grain from anywhere from Waruka, uh, Clare, uh, north of Jamestown, um, that's, a, that's a massive effort on behalf of the growers and we really appreciate their support. There's been, um, obviously, you're now shipping out of Wallaroo. How's that been going? Yeah, Wallaroo's good. Um, you know, well, I think we've loaded five vessels now out of Wallaroo, so um, that'll be back on track, um, you know, in the coming months when we start loading uh, vessels out of Wallaroo. Um, the Lucky Air's busy now at, uh, at Lucky Bay, obviously. Um, but yeah, that'll be going back and forth from for me, the port, and making sure that um, we fill those boats. Do you, do they work sort of together? If you've got a bit of grain at um, uh, sold from Lucky Bay, and they might come and get or go a bit, go and get a bit from Lucky Bay, come get some from Wallaroo as well. Um, yeah, yeah, that can happen. Absolutely, you know, it's um, it's up to the trade exporters at the end of the day. Um, we're here for them to give them support if they want to part load either side of the Gulf. That's exactly what we'll do. Yeah. What was quality like this year? While while the average tonnage was down, was quality still not too bad? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, probably massive effort as on behalf of the plant breeders. You know, to have uh, the frost effect on the on the Air Peninsula. Um, and still screenings were, were low, you know, so majority of the grain was H2, high-protein wheat, you know, so that's them good for Australian sales, you know. There's always good high-protein wheat on the Air Peninsula. Um, so, yeah, it was, I guess those late summer rains impacted the, the latter part of the season um, with some SFW1 around, but, you know, the majority of the grain coming in at harvest time was great quality. Being a... Um, a- a smaller year compared to, to last year. How did it, did it change in terms of, of logistics and that um, on both sites? Yeah, look, it does change, especially on the Air Peninsula. You know, whereas leaner years, the growers or the carries will cart longer. So, you know, a lot more carries into a Lucky Bay um, and the likes. Um, traditionally, the, the grain flow paths on the Air Peninsula, as people would know, have changed significantly, you know, in the last four years since T-Ports have been in existence. You know, for the last... Probably you know, 18 months, you know, we've saved nearly 44,000 truck movements through the main streets of Port Lincoln by offering that um, extra additional supply chain through Lucky Bay. So um, certainly things are changing and, you know, growers and carriers are taking advantage of that. What was the uh, the workforce like? Uh, you had enough workers and, and also a topic we've discussed previously is, is finding places for them to stay. Was that uh, an issue this year, this harvest? Yeah, it's always a bit of an issue, uh, regional accommodation. Um, it's getting pretty tough, yeah. Um, certainly the workers uh, post-COVID, um, our employees were easy to find. Um, you know, we employ you know, over 200 people, so we filled positions, but that accommodation, you know, scenario of trying to find them places to stay on the Air Peninsula, even Wallaroo, is finding, we're finding that pretty difficult. So um, trying to work out... Um, a plan where we can, you know, I guess, join the dots. Um, you know, we had 
obviously some farmhouses they were staying in, accommodation in, in shearing sheds that was um, brand new and, and fantastic, um, you know, almost, um, you know, probably four-star accommodation, um, which was great. You know, the growers have been helping us out in that front as well. So, What's the feedback been from growers with, with the site here um, in particular? Yeah, and look, we've got our grower and carrier surveys out um, at the minute as we speak. So, you know, that's been sent out to probably 450 growers and 70 carriers that are deliver grain into Teaports. So I'd encourage, you know, all those growers that were sent the text message um, last Friday and probably a couple of reminders um, between now and when it finishes. But, to, you know, give us that feedback. It's really important to our business. We need to know you know, what we're doing good and, and possibly where, where we're not so good and where we can improve. And, you know, growers are very entrepreneurial in their own right and, and the way they farm. Um, and if we can tap into some ideas that they've got, how we can improve our business, we're, we're all ears. Yep. That is T-Port's Client Relations Manager of Business Development, Tim Gurney, and he was speaking there to Brooke Nindorf. And next week you'll hear how Harvest has finished up for Viterra. So stick around next week for that. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, Australian farmers certainly aren't alone in trying to find ways to use nitrogen more efficiently. And while it's a pretty common goal globally, government policy on this varies from country to country. A Canadian farmer and agronomist, Dr Sherry Stridehorse, says farmers in her country face growing public and political pressure to reduce their nitrogen use. Now, she's in South Australia this week. She's been a guest speaker at the Grains Research and Development Corporation's research update in Adelaide. And I had the chance to catch up with Dr Stridehorst and ask her, firstly, about her own farming background. To start off, I am a Canadian um, and my husband and I have a farm in Alberta, Canada, kind of right smack down in the middle. But I am quite unique in that um, in addition to living on a farm and knowing the realities of that, I also have completed my bachelor's, master's and PhD. Um, I've worked in research. I've worked um, in provincial government. I've worked in extension. So I kind of have my foot in um, both worlds. So I, I kind of have that ability to really understand the breadth of the science and the practicality of farming. And what do you farm on your property? Yeah, so on our farm, um, wheat, barley, uh, saba beans and canola would be the main crops that that we grow. Mm, So very similar to the types of crops we're growing, obviously, here in, in South Australia, where you are at the moment. Yeah, I'm not in lentil growing area, which I I hear is a big difference because that's a pretty popular down here. But um, otherwise, there you know there is a lot of commonality, and yet there's also big differences in the challenges we face. Um, one of the sessions uh, about trying to establish canola uh, in Alberta, canola is a volunteer canola is a weed, uh, one of the top mm-hmm. ones, and it germinates on the soil surface. And yet here in Australia and South Australia, you guys are struggling with the lack of moisture and the heat and those are just not problems we have so while we farm similar crops it is um, unique challenges we each face and of course unique um, solutions that we need for those two. So talking about challenges and solutions part of your presentation at this event in Adelaide this week uh, has been looking at the efficient use of, of nitrogen and reducing greenhouse gas emissions which I guess is something a commonality to, to farmers really everywhere. Talk us through a bit about the Canadian experience in this space and, and what's happening back at home. 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think for farmers everywhere, no matter what, nitrogen use efficiency is critical. So for every pound or kilogram of nitrogen that you put into the soil in terms of fertilizer, you want more grain, you want more protein. And I think that's a universal goal that all farmers have because we improve that nitrogen use efficiency and we improve our profitability. Um, One of the things that's maybe a little higher on the Canadian panic list is policy being proposed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions due to fertilizers that's been proposed uh, to reduce those greenhouse gas emissions associated with fertilizer use by 30%. And um, right now, the the government is not uh, implemented that in Canada, but it certainly created a space for the need for research to understand what possibilities there are. And um, certainly there is not a desire in Canada to reduce fertilizer use by 30% because growers um, see a a direct cut to the grain they're able to produce and therefore the profit. So that's what has maybe motivated a bunch of the research that we have undertaken in this area. Um, Some of the solutions we are looking at um, to maintain um, the rates of fertilizer is to use enhanced efficiency fertilizers that produce or that prevent nitrogen loss from volatilization, um, from denitrification, and from leaching. And I think these are things that uh, the global grain industry needs to deal with. And, you know, we're not seeing a, a huge benefit from these in terms of increasing yields, but um, the greenhouse gas emissions is part of the research that we're still putting that data together for. And, you know, um, at the end of the day, it becomes who pays for it and the social good associated with that. Because I understand some of these fertilisers can be quite costly as well, or certainly higher cost than, than what's currently being used. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't think I am <laughs> have the numbers off the top of my head to quote, but anytime you add a cost, when there is no additional grain or higher protein and nothing to offset that cost, um, it just becomes a burden to the farm. So if, um, you know, society, and I think reducing greenhouse gas emissions due to food production, is there society good there? How, what kind of system or mechanism um, will we come up with if there is a particular product that helps to achieve that? Um, what kind of shared goals can we and shared costs can we have um, to achieve that? As you say, uh, farming systems in Canada are a bit different to what we're doing here in Australia and yep. uh, and obviously government policies are quite different, but do you then see some similarities in, in what the challenges that then farmers are facing in this space to what farmers are, are, are challenged with here? Yes, um, certainly I think the similarities is that, and I've heard it here at the conference, that our buyers internationally, both for Canadian grains and Australian grains, are under great scrutiny to verify how we are growing these grains, how that we're growing them responsibly. And we all have to, I think, collect the data on that and um, set targets to meet that. And it's just not a simple, easy path to get there. So we will each have our own paths. But I think the end goal for for all grain producing uh, exporting regions will, will be the same. Canadian farmer and agronomist Dr. Sherry Stridehorse, one of the key presenters at the Grains Research and Development Corporation's Research Update, which was held in Adelaide this week. And I must give a shout out to South Australian Ag Communicator and Facilitator Belinda Kay and South Australian Agronomist Jana Dixon, who were each presented with awards at the GRDC event this week. Ms Kay was awarded the Seed of Light Award and Ms Dixon the Emerging Leader Award. So congratulations to both. With the ABC Listen app, you can take the cricket with you anywhere you go. Bow! 
Off to the beach. Take the cricket. Road trip. Take the cricket. Museum visit. Shh, take the cricket. Seriously? You want to listen? Yeah. <laughs> ABC Sports, expert coverage of every test. Big shout, he's out. One day up. Australia is celebrating. And T20. Over the right for another six. Live and commercial free. So whatever you're up to this summer, take the cricket with you and listen big on the ABC Listen app. We're off to the Weather Bureau now. John Fisher, our forecaster today. Hi, John. G'day, Selena. What's the weather as we round out the week? Yeah, look, uh, another day very similar to yesterday, so plenty of uh, sunshine uh, across the state. We, we have had a, a little bit of low cloud push-up uh, across some southern coastal areas in our southeasterly airstream that we've been uh, stuck in for a few days now. But, uh, yeah, uh, other than that, pretty much dry and, and sunny conditions across the state. Uh, maybe just uh, one or two thunderstorms up in the far northeast corner uh, of the state as we, we move through the, the afternoon. Uh, Else, uh, otherwise, uh, looking like uh, those those winds uh, really starting to, to freshen, and, and even some strong winds around coastal uh, waters uh, this afternoon. So we do have some uh, strong wind warnings out. Uh, that's uh, also something to, to note there. Uh, but uh, yeah, this stable pattern is going to hang around for another couple of days. So um, yeah, not too much change uh, as we move through the, the weekend there, uh, except temperatures are gradually I- increasing. So uh, airstream starting to tend a little bit more easterly uh, and we, we see those temperatures starting to pick up uh, for Saturday, probably um, coming up a, a couple of degrees uh, generally across the, the south there, but uh, uh, not, not a great deal. Uh, probably going to see more of that increase uh, in temperature as we move through Sunday and that's when uh, the, that southerly airstream starts to ease off uh, and uh, we see that that hot air mass which is starting to build through the north of the state uh, extend further south so uh, yeah generally a, a hot day there on Sunday um, and, and over the weekend yeah continuing with the, some risk of a, a thunderstorm up in the, the far northeast corner of the state um, could also see a, a fog patch around the, the lower southeast uh, as well Sunday uh, morning uh, but uh, yeah, in terms of um, yeah, some more impactful weather uh, potentially on the way, it's probably going to be Monday and Tuesday, Selena. So uh, we're looking at a, a generally a hot to very hot day throughout uh, on, on Monday um, and fairly light winds as well, but uh, yeah, coming round uh, to the north. Uh, so yeah, probably seeing that, that fire danger risk starting to, to increase uh, as well, but um, uh, winds aren't going to be too strong, fortunately, uh, on the Monday with that heat. Uh, more as we move into to Tuesdays there. So we're, we're trying to um, get a good handle on the timing of, of that next change coming across uh, on Tuesday. Looks like it's fairly early for southern and, and western parts of the state, but uh, uh, through some inland and eastern areas, uh, we, we are still going to see that, uh, that that hot, windy, um, uh, northerly kind of uh, airflow ahead of that uh, trough, uh, which could give rise to some uh, fire weather risks and, and maybe even uh, some dry lightning as well. So keeping a close uh, eye on that change Tuesday and, and, and then winds in behind that change uh, uh, quite uh, you know fresh to strong and, and, and gusty as that uh, uh, southerly kind of pushes uh, inland by, by later Tuesday, uh, Selena. So, yeah, look... Uh, bit to keep an eye on there early next week uh, and until then just this kind of uh, gradual uh, warming trend and and probably just in the, the outlook period as well um, or I should mention that that is pretty much a dry change moving through uh, on Tuesday so not really looking at any any rainfall there and and continuing in the outlook period uh, looking dry so that kind of next Wednesday to Friday uh, we are looking at uh, back into that southerly flow so temperatures uh, dropping back uh, below average um, but 
uh, yeah, looking like a continuation of the, the dry conditions, but just a gradual uh, warming trend later next week. So, uh, yeah, uh, overall, the only real rainfall across the state, we're looking at, uh, you know, those those storms up in the, the far northeast, um, you know, totals probably less than uh, five millimetres uh, daily. So that's not really going to add too much to the, uh, the, the water that's been lying around uh, up through there and, and uh, uh, any further water coming in from uh, from Queensland. But, uh, yeah, we do still uh, have that uh, warning out for, for the inland rivers with some, some water, particularly at the Cooper Creek uh, currently, Selena. All right, thanks for that, John. Have a great Friday. You too, thanks. John Fisher there from the Weather Bureau. The forecast for the western inland parts of New South Wales for Saturday, the Upper Western District mostly sunny with a slight chance of a shower near the Queensland border, near zero chance elsewhere, and the chance of a thunderstorm in the north in the afternoon and evening. For the Lower Western District, a sunny day. For both districts, those overnight temperatures will fall between 15 and 20 degrees. During the day, they'll sit somewhere in the low to high 30s. We're going to look at the increasing cost of sending your kids to boarding school in this next half an hour. It's half past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Hope you're having a good afternoon. Now the race to get ahead of the bee-killing Varroa mite before it reaches South Australia, it's on. But there are concerns that our state will be too late to get its plan together. The whole state is still waiting on the New South Wales, on the national response to form a transition to management plan and get it out there. They still haven't, despite that decision being made, that that's where we were going in September. So I suspect by the time we get a plan ready, it'll uh, just about be here. More on that to come shortly. Also, there's a lot of talk around nuclear power. Nuclear power requires uranium. Well, there's a large uranium system just west of Broken Hills. So you'll learn more about its potential in this half an hour. My talkback number, 1300 991 today, or the text line is 0467 922 Lots of great stuff coming up, but let's start with some news headlines with James Wakelin. Hello, James. Hello, Selena. A man has been arrested over the death of a 26-year-old woman at Redwood Park in Adelaide's northeast. Emergency services were called to a Somerset Avenue home yesterday morning where a woman had been found unconscious and couldn't be revived. A 27-year-old man from the address has been charged with administering a drug of dependence. SA police are searching for suspects involved in the theft of an ATM from a hotel in the Adelaide Hills overnight. Authorities were called to Scott Road in Kersbrook when an alarm activated at half past four this morning. Police say there was a significant amount of damage to the premises and the ATM was missing. Fire crews were later called to a van fire on North East Road at Chain of Ponds. Police found parts of the stolen ATM at the scene. Authorities say the vehicle had been stolen from Tanunda earlier in the night. And Port Adelaide Premiership captain Warren Treadray has been appointed to the club's board, narrowly defeating another former player, Bruce Abernethy. Treadray, who has been critical of coach Ken Hinckley, has been appointed for three years. We'll have more ABC News at one o'clock. Thank you, James. James Wakelin with those headlines. Well, about 4,000 kids from remote Australia rely on boarding schools to finish their education. But even at more affordable schools, boarding fees are climbing. 
The federal government has offered a new scholarship to help out, but only for a fraction of students from remote parts of the country. Stephen Schubert from the ABC's specialist reporting team has this story from Lambina Station. This is the last leg of a long trip for 13-year-old Steve Fennell. He's just had an almost 900-kilometre bus ride from boarding school and is now being driven up his family's 64-kilometre-long driveway off the Udundatta track to their home at Lamina Station in South Australia's far north. Starting at boarding school, it's a very different change from going from living on a station to living like more in the city. There's lots of new people like sport. I've never played sport until this year. It was very big. While the tuition fees at his regional Catholic school are modest, Steve's mother Gillian says the cost of boarding has grown significantly. It's a massive financial pressure um, because apart from the school fees, you've also got the associated costs of the travel, which is extensive. The kids boarding school is 900 kilometres away and it's not in a major centre so we can't fly the kids back and forth. We have to drive there and pick them up and bring them home again at the start and end of every term. Then you have other things like uniforms and and sporting equipment and all these sorts of things that you're happy to pay for because you want to give your kids the best opportunity that you can in life. And on top of the school fees, paying all these extra things, it's, it's a real struggle sometimes. Data collected by the Isolated Children's Parents Association shows the average cost of boarding school has been growing over the last decade. 19% in New South Wales, 22% in Queensland, 18% in Western Australia and 74% in the Northern Territory. To help, the federal government provides an allowance called Assistance for Isolated Children. To be eligible, families must live more than 56 kilometres from their nearest government school. The allowance increases in line with inflation. This year it's worth almost $10,000, but it hasn't kept up with the rapid raise in boarding costs. When it was introduced in 1975, it covered 55% of average boarding costs. In 2015, that slipped to between 39 and 55%, depending on the state, but now it covers between 33 and 44% of average boarding fees. The Isolated Children's Parents Association says the average out-of-pocket costs for remote families is now $20,000 every year for every kid in boarding school. Here's Gillian Fennell again. But we live in Australia and everyone here is entitled to a decent education regardless of where they live. And it's, we're not asking for a, a full free ride to an exclusive inner Sydney boys school or anything like that. We're just asking for support to help us send our kids to boarding school. We're more than prepared to pay for it. But the assistance offered by the government hasn't kept pace with inflation or cost increases or anything like that. As well as Steve, the family have an elder son who finished school last year. Their youngest is daughter Eleanor. She still attends School of the Air, learning remotely from home. She'll start boarding in four years. I do want to go to boarding school so I can meet new people. Most of them will be my age. It feels a little bit scary as well. To help, the federal government has introduced a new scholarship worth up to $20,000 a year. But there's only 100 of them, 30 of which are specifically for Indigenous kids from the Kimberley and Cape York. 4,000 children from remote Australia rely on boarding schools. And for kids like Steve Fennell, there were only 70 scholarships available. He applied, but missed out. I don't necessarily think it's quite fair how they're only given out 70, because there's heaps of bush kids that might want it and 
might need it a lot more than me and other people that might have gotten it. But they just didn't get it. The Isolated Children's Parents Association wants an increase to the boarding allowance that all eligible students can access, which they say would cost $16 million a year. Its president, Louise Martin, lives on a cattle station near Tambo in central Queensland. Her twin daughters have just finished high school last year. She says it's more than primary producers who rely on boarding schools. Essential workers who come to our rural and remote communities, such as nurses, policemen, teachers, once their children get to the age of high school, they usually pack up and leave because sending their children away to school is unaffordable. So the best thing for them to do is leave uh, so they can access secondary education. In a statement, Assistant Minister for Education Anthony Chisholm said there were 353 applications for the scholarship program, which is in its pilot phase. He said the government will consider additional places in future years. Stephen Schubert with that report, and it's 23 minutes to one. Well, a key body for beekeepers here in South Australia is concerned that varroa mite could get into the state before the industry has a plan. In September last year, the National Management Group decided it wasn't feasible to eradicate the pest, instead entering into a transition to management phase. But as yet, the group haven't delivered a revised plan for the industry. South Australian Apiarist Association President Brenton Davis told Eliza Berlage it's important for beekeepers to learn about management practices in the interim. Well, the majority of South Australia is in the same bee biosecurity area as New South Wales and Victoria and the lower parts of Queensland. So it's been, Varroa has been declared, it's not going to be eradicated now. It's here to stay. It will be coming to South Australia at some stage. And the South Australian Apiarist Association believes we should concentrate on educating people and the beekeepers and everyone else that's going to be affected on the impact and the how we're to manage it into the future and not waste time trying to stop the inevitable. And are you able to tell me about any of the education and uh, activities that you've been working on around this? So we're still waiting on, the whole state is still waiting on the New South Wales on the national response to form a transition to management plan and get it out there. They still haven't, despite that decision being made, that that's where we were going in September. So I suspect by the time we get a plan ready, it'll uh, just about be here. So I think everyone should be doing all they can to learn what's coming, what the effects are going to be, how you should manage it, and start implementing those plans yourself now. Don't wait for the government to help you or it'll be too late. So there's not a date for when you guys expect this um, transition to management plan to be released? No, I don't, no. No, yeah. I don't have a, any idea when they're looking to release it. I thought it would have been done by now. And what sort of plans can uh, beekeepers be implementing now? Yeah, there's plenty of uh, information available. People should go to their state conferences because there's good presentations on Varroa at those. There's reading material out there. You can go online and find information. So there is plenty of information out there. I think it's just important people learn and then try and work out what practices they're going to have to change or implement in order to successfully manage Varroa in their hives. I just urge everybody, make sure they've got beehives registered if they know of people that have got unregistered ones, get them to register their hives, join their associations, 
respectively, and that way they can get the most information possible. And if they have problems, then contact their state associations, etc., and see what we can do to help. That is the president of South Australia's APRIS Association, Brenton Davis, and he was speaking there to Eliza Berlage. ABC Listen. Listen big to a symphony of podcasts on the ABC Listen app. How does that feel? Like the true crime mystery, Unravel Firebomb. How did they get away with it for so long? Sana Kadar's All in the Mind. As you scale this technique up, you can memorise all kinds of things. Or Mark Fennell's Stuff the British Stole. This should not be here. How did that happen? The big app for podcasts and quality audiobooks anywhere you want. Download the free ABC Listen app. Time right now is 19 minutes to one. You're with Selena Green on the Country Hour this afternoon. Well, Lucendale area school students, they've started off their year with a major win at an International Dairy Week Cows Create Careers competition. Four students competed at the national competition over in Victoria. They had nine other schools to come out on top. The school was awarded with an extra large trophy. I've seen a photo of it. It's taller than the students themselves. I don't know how they got it home. They also got $3,000 for their win, which will be used to improve some of the agricultural equipment on the campus at the school in the state southeast. Elsie Adamo caught up with the students earlier this week to hear all about their experience. I'm Paige and I'm in Year 10. I'm Harmony and I'm in Year 11. I'm Layla and I'm in Year 9. And I'm Lacey and I'm in Year 9 too. So how did you all prepare for the competition? Um, well, we kind of, we had to create a video to submit to when we got there on the day. We had to present our video in front of all the schools and talk about why dairy is an essential part of your diet with a 30-second intro and a 30-second conclusion. Was it nerve-wracking being yes. there? Yes. yes, it was really scary talking in front of all the schools. And we, we did something different. We put our costumes on, so we were standing in front of all these people with... Wearing costumes. A cow costume, a cheese costume, and milk costume. Some of the milk as well, and a farmer, so... You obviously really sold it, though. Yeah. <laughs> Did you think you'd win? No. No, not really. Because there was lots of um, older groups there, and we just thought, like, they presented their stuff really well, so we weren't expecting mm. to win. We were trying to do, like, our best and have a good time, but come out on top. And worth it in the end, even if you had to give up a little bit of your holiday time? Yes, yes. it was really good. Can you explain just how big the trophy you were given is? Um, Probably, okay. like, five foot. <laughs> five foot tall, so... Pretty big. Pretty, yeah, pretty Biggest big. trophy the school's ever gotten? Um, I'd yeah. say so, yeah. Do any of you want to work in agriculture after school? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Doing what kind of things do you think? Vet. Yeah. Two vets? Yeah. Um, I don't know what I want to do. I just want to go to university for agricultural science and then I'll figure it out from there. Yeah, yeah probably go to university maybe. Lucendale area school students Lacey, Layla, Harmony and Paige there. Special Programs Ag Teacher at Lucendale Area School, Lucinda Smith, says the program was an excellent opportunity for the students as many hadn't had any exposure to the dairy industry previously. The Cows Creek program has been operating for well over 20 years um, across Australia. So we uh, at the school have been participating in that for around 10 years and we do that with our year six and seven students and year eight students as well. These students have all participated within the program um, in previous years and we were lucky enough to have a fair bit of success over the last couple of years winning the national competition two years ago and being a finalist in the national competition last year as well. So the International Dairy Program 
was new last year to Cows Create Careers, sorry, and that was they offered places for that at the end of last year and we were lucky enough to be selected as one of the schools participating in that. And, yeah, we were lucky enough to be given a spot and sponsorship to actually attend, which was fantastic. Definitely sort of not an industry. We do have a dairy just out the road, but it's not something that we have a lot of dairies around this area, so it's a nice aspect to our curriculum here at Lucendale to add that in. And the Cows Create Careers program obviously makes that really easy to do, and I'd highly recommend all schools doing that. You get to have calves for three weeks and get to look after them, teach the kids how to care for them, whether you're in ag school or not. They definitely help you set up that program, and it's all there for you, so yeah such a fantastic program to be involved in and you were proud of the girls at this recent competition absolutely proud of them they <laughs> the competition had three different aspects so they had the moon transfer which was the video they've just talked about they had a around the dairy they had to interview stall holders that were exhibiting or uh, were also displaying their products for the dairy industry they had to answer questions about and then they actually had to have a race for dairy which is a bit like a young farmers challenge where they had to build a styrofoam cow they had to mix milk powder they had to create a two meter squared uh, pigtail fence they also then had to build a wheelbarrow a kid's wheelbarrow from scratch and race their cow across the line to finish the actual race so they did really well and were very consistent in all areas which sort of helped them in the end obviously yeah what do you think lucendale's doing so right to do so well in so many different ad comps I think we draw upon lots of different industry experts, bring them into school. We have a farm manager, which also helps. We also have some great ag teachers and the students are really keen and get really involved and hands-on and it helps them be engaged within the agriculture industry here at Lucendale. Obviously a lot of work goes into the ag program here. Absolutely. We are an ag-focused school here at Lucendale. Uh, so it's yeah a big part of our curriculum here. We teach ag from reception to year 10 as compulsory subject and then you're 11 and 12 we offer a range of different ag ag subjects that they students can select as part of their say so we are very lucky we've got three ag teachers here at the moment and yeah we run a really broad range of um, curriculum areas and different facilities and options with our students ranging from chickens day-old chickens to veggie gardens to the eco shelter with our pigs at which we sell to customers and the community as a bit of a sort of plate to plate sort of experience for the kids. We also have a vineyard, we do cropping. The kids are involved in all aspects of our school farm, which is fantastic. It starts at reception level. And students do go into the industry after school often? Yeah, absolutely, because we've got a strong focus, um, not just on ag, but on academics as well. We have a broad range of options for our students. You can see that two of them are aspiring to be vets, which is fantastic. So love the ag industry, but also academic as well. So here we do offer a range of different aspects. So we, yeah, the kids get a broad range, not just in ag, but other curriculum areas as well. So you're going to keep going with it? You've got this giant trophy to defend now? Absolutely. We're going to see if we can go back to back. That is the special programs ag teacher at the Lucendale Area School, Lucinda Smith, and she's ending that story from Elsie Adamo. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, as the interest for nuclear energy increases, a large Iranian system 50 kilometres west of Broken Hill is proving to be very valuable. In a recent review of the area, a significant discovery of potential higher-grade mineralisation of uranium was identified, providing the opportunity for some more exploration and possible mining in the area. Director of Exploration at Marmota, Aaron Brown, told Lily McEwer that it's an important time for the industry with the upswing in the uranium market. Basically, we sort of discovered a, there's a sort 
first area we call Saffron, where we currently have a resource. And then there's an area to the north called Bridget and an area to the south called Yolanda, which are, are still exploration targets where we've sort of intercepted uranium at all of them. Um, and so basically it's like a, something like a 20-kilometre long stretch of where the paleo channel flows that we were able to accept, um, you know, find uranium mineralisation throughout that 20-kilometre stretch, essentially. And I guess, how was this site near Broken Hill identified as somewhere that could be quite rich in uranium? Yeah, so basically there's a geological feature running through there um, called the Aramba Paleo Channel or Paleo Valley. And within the, the broader Paleo Valley, there's these Paleo Channels where um, uranium-bearing sort of water can flow through and then it basically looks for the right conditions where the uranium can then drop out and concentrate and build up to, to form a deposit. So early Marmota would have used tools like um, airborne electromagnetics, where basically you, you fly a plane and it helps sort of define where the channels are likely to be. And then from that, then you go in and start drill testing, you know, where you think the channels are. So it's yeah, a bit of um, what we call geophysics, then you know, follow-up drilling to actually work out which parts of the channel or, or the floodplains associated with the channels are most likely to actually carry the grade for you. Recently, I believe there's been some larger uranium systems that have been discovered. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so we've had um, the recent sort of upswing in the uranium price and uranium demand, and also with Boss, which are they're about their honeymoon mines, about 15 kilometres to the west of us in the same sort of paleo channel system. So we've we've been carrying out a pretty um, thorough review of our exploration targets and the resource and also other areas where the, the potential for hosting the uranium mineralisation. Um, the most recent announcement we put out was about our um, Bridget uh, uranium. Uh, I guess it's still an exploration target at the moment. So there was drilling completed there um, you know, prior to the end of 2011. We intersected uranium um, and some quite good grades. Uh, the recent review, what it's found is that we have... Um, what we'd expect for the area, which is mineralisation within the floodplains adjacent to the Uramba Paleo Channels, uh, which is similar to what you find at Honeymoon. Um, so that was sort of no surprise. But what we actually found in a younger geological unit above it, we actually found mineralisation inside the Paleo Channels at the base of that, um, which is actually a lot more like the mineralisation style you see at the Beverly Uranium Mine, which is sort of over near the Flinders Ranges further west. We basically sort of got Mother Nature giving us the best of both sort of mines in the area, with the with the you know the honeymoon style stuff in the the deeper deeper layers, and then the the Beverly style mineralisation in the younger upper geology, and this is sort of quite significant. Um, I guess you know during the downturn, Beverly was one of the places that was able to keep producing, keep exploring, um, and, and remain profitable. They they get really good um, high grades in these these younger um, Namba formation paleo channel systems um, and our recent reviews sort of identified what looks like a sort of 20 odd metre tall roll front um, and these these can get you know, really, really high grades when you get closer to the nose of the roll front. So basically, particularly at Bridget, we've got double the potential mineralisation to find um, throughout the area, one in the, the older, um, older system similar to Honeymoon and one in the younger system, similar to Beverly. So it's you know, more bang for your buck. What we've also realised when we discovered that was looking back at the Bridget area, which is where our resource is, that the younger paleo channels are actually present there. Um, we haven't sort of encountered any economic 
you know, mineralisation there yet, but this discovery when we've been reinterpreting Bridget suggests that we need to, obviously, the rest of our areas keep an eye out for these, these younger paleo channels as well, potentially doubling some of the, the potential targets we have. You mentioned that there's been this uh, increased demand for uranium. Why, why is that? Where has that demand come from? Pretty much all over the world. So um, what's going on at the moment is uh, obviously, you know, people are worried about sort of, you know, carbon intensive energy. Solar and, and wind have their limitations. If the sun's not shining or the wind's not blowing, you just don't generate power. So there's been a lot more interest in nuclear energy to the point that I think, um, yeah, basically was it US, Canada, China, India, Germany and Japan have all flagged that they're going to increase their capacity for nuclear production. So obviously that takes more uranium to then fuel these these um, power plants to actually produce the power. Um, and I think in, in some cases they're talking up to, you know, three to four times the current levels by 2050. Um, so over the next 25 years, there's going to be a massive increase in, in demand for uranium. Um, and at the moment, well, over the you know, last sort of probably 10 years, the, the actual supply has been decreasing. And so what you're getting is the the expected demand and the, the current supply rates, um, which are actually dropping from the, the currently producing mines around the world, um, but you just can't meet the, the expected demand with the supply. So when you get a, a demand and supply difference like that, then obviously the whatever you're producing becomes a lot more valuable. That is the Director of Exploration at Marmoto, Aaron Brown, and he was speaking there to Lily McEwer. It's just going on six minutes to one. You're on the South Australian Country Hour with Selena Green on this Friday. Well, finally today, an inspiring group of young people have returned to their hometowns from a week in Canberra where they met for the Haywire Youth Forum. Winners of the ABC Haywire competition all met to share their stories but also collaborate on topics that are passionate to them. Well, the Air Peninsula Haywire winner, Prapti Pai, spoke with Brooke Nindorf about how the trip went. It was amazing. It was so different to what I expected. And we I found myself feeling so energetic and having so much fun with everyone there. It was great to be, um, meet the fellow winners. What was it like sharing everyone's stories about what they wrote about and where they've come from? It was, everyone had so many different experiences. And everyone was so vulnerable with their stories. We felt closer together as a group because we had posted our stories. For people that don't know, what, what do you do at at this uh, the, the Haywire Youth Forum? At the Youth Forum, we get together. We meet all the winners from Haywire and Trailblazers, which is a supporting organisation. And we get to identify problems that uh, we face as rural people, come together and form solutions for them. And what group were you part of? What, what problem did you look at at, uh, at this week? This week, uh, I was part of the Fun Opportunities group. And we came up with a solution called busing, which is a play on words for a slang term named busing. And also creating a public transportation system called busing, which would be youth-led. And how would that work? We'd be using existing buses in our communities, for example, school buses that are not being used on the weekends, create an infrastructure transport schedule organised by youth leaders within a certain community to create stops for where young people want to go and it would take kids where kids want to go. And what do you think that might do for a community? As rural kids, a lot of the people feel isolated within their space feel like they can't get to where they want to go. For example, say we have a music festival out in Coffin Bay or something. 
and I'm in Port Lincoln. My dad can't exactly leave everything to drive me there for the night and then come back and go to work the next morning. Something like busing could take us over there for a minimum fee and drop us back. It would be a safe way to travel rather than overloading on peas. Do you think it might help with uh, you know, antisocial behaviour and, and things that you might see in a community giving young people opportunities to go and do different things? Definitely. Busing would be a social opportunity for people. We would, we're hoping if there's enough resources and volunteers for there to be an MC on board as well as a driver who would be able to get everyone involved in activities and create a community within the bus. What else did you get to do while you were in, in Canberra, Prabhdi? We got to celebrate all our stories on the last day at a gala dinner. And surprisingly, the Prime Minister was there to attend for a short time. It was amazing. And it was also at Parliament House. At the end, it turned into a dance party, which was quite fun. <laughs> and so what are you hoping from what you've taken from this week? What are you hoping to then now take into your year? You're in year 12 this year at, at school. What are you hoping to take on with, with your leadership roles in, in the Port Lincoln community? I'd love to see more people involved and also applying for opportunities like this at my high school. I find that there's so many unsto- so many stories untold. I'd like to encourage my peers to go out and put themselves out there. Yeah, there's some great opportunities that come out of being part of ABC's Haywire. That is Air Peninsula Haywire winner, Prapti Pai, and she was speaking there to Brooke Neindorf. It's just going on two minutes to the news. Nikolai Balharts will be with you this afternoon. Hello, Nikolai. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. How are you? I'm very good. How are you rounding out the week for us? Well, I need to need to begin the, the program a few minutes earlier than normal today with a, a public service announcement. Mm-hmm. At, a, at about half past one, we are going to be talking about poo. Um, <laughs> but... Do you want me to go on? I can no, just stop that's there. Fu- you can just leave it at that. No context. I love it. Well, the, the context here is actually a little convoluted, but it's a, quite an interesting one. Um, the rules have just changed on Mount Everest. Climbers on Mount Everest now have to bring their waste back down with them because oh. it's being left up there and it started become a, becoming a really big issue, not just for you know the, the queasiness side of things, but in terms of public health and stuff as well. Yeah, there's a lot of rubbish up there. Mm. And and there are parallels here in South Australia as well. A lot of the the camping spots that you'll see reviews for will say, oh, beautiful spot. But people are just leaving their waste everywhere, rubbish or poo. Mm. Um, And so we're going to take a look at how big of an issue it is and whether it's growing. It's one of those, you know, um, double-edged swords, I suppose, almost, of a, a, a boost in tourism. Hey, that's great. But then if that means... More people are leaving rubbish and waste behind. It kind of wrecks it for whoever's next. Yeah. All right. Um, so you have your lunch finished by that one? Yes. Yes. That's. I just wanted to give you the heads up. <laughs> Thanks for the if, warning. Very wise. If, if you were thinking of putting off lunch for a little bit, maybe just have your sandwich now. Fantastic. You enjoy that discussion. You have a great uh, show. I will. Thank you. <laughs> Nikolai Bale has to be with you with that story and much, much more this afternoon. Thanks so much for your company today and all this week. It's just going on news time. It's one o'clock. When you're out and about, remember to take ABC Radio in your pocket. Whatever you're doing, wherever you're going, you won't miss a moment of ABC Radio with the free ABC Listen app. Download it to your phone today. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.